Good morning, church family. We're about to um, read our second reading for this morning, which is the second to last chapter in Isaiah. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 65, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Please join along with me as um, I read, and you um, also, in terms of looking at the words, on page 727 of the Pew Bible or behind me on the screen. Isaiah chapter 65, beginning at verse 1. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of unclean meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your father. Father, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and men say, don't destroy it, there is yet some good in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who, fors who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and you will all bend down for the slaughter." For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name to my chosen ones as a curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants, he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes." Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. 
The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's John. I'm the pastor here, and it's good to see you, our church family, and also many new faces as well. And let me also extend Happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. This morning for Father's Day morning, I, I got some gifts from my kids, and one of my, I think one of my boys gave me a, a stress ball. I'm, now, I'm not sure what is meant by that, but a stress ball. And another one, uh, toilet paper. I don't know why. We've got plenty at home. But that's what I got for Father's Day. Exciting. Uh, well, whether Father's Day is a happy day for you or, or it might be a sad day, we do all have the Heavenly Father, the perfect Heavenly Father in heaven who loves us, who cares for us, who listens to our prayers, who continues to speak to us through his word. And so that's what we're going to do now. So let's pray to our Heavenly Father and to listen to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do love us. You are the perfect Father, the Father we all have, the Father we long to have but not, might not have here on earth. And we know, Lord, that you continue to speak to us too by your written word. And we pray that as we sit under it again, that you'll teach us what we are to believe and how we are to live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like to begin this morning with a question, and that is, what do you think the role of a pastor is? Pastor, minister, what is the role of a pastor? Now I suspect many of you would have heard many jokes about what pastors do. Not much. That's a joke. It's meant to be a joke. It's not true. Or some might say he doesn't do much. He only works one day a week. That's also a joke. I hope you think that's a joke. But what do you think the role of a pastor is? Now, as a pastor myself, I've heard it explained and expressed in many different ways, but recently I heard of this, and I think this captures it really well. I really like this. The job of a pastor is to prepare the people for life and death. 
the job of a pastor is to prepare the people for life and death. Now, what do you think about that? To prepare for life, that is, to prepare for a life with God, to know God, to love God, to be loved by God, a life where Jesus is King and Lord, to prepare for life. And to prepare for death, that is, to prepare all people to one day meet your maker, meet the one who made you, meet the one who gave you life, to prepare for death. And so the next time anyone asks you, what does your pastor do? Hopefully you know how to answer that. But of course that's not just the job of the pastor. It's the job of all Christians towards one another, to prepare each other for life and death. The job of parents, to prepare their children for life and death. And so my question to you all this morning, are you prepared for life and death? Are you prepared to meet God? Now I suspect even asking that question, that can be quite uncomfortable. It might bring up feelings of anxiety or worry or concern. Or it might even bring up feelings of apathy and indifference. Who cares? Well, the passage we're looking at this morning shows that it is worth caring about. There is a lot to care about simply because there is indeed a God, a God who can be found by anyone and everyone. And so you need to be prepared for that. A God who will hold every single soul to account. And so you need to be prepared for that. And a God who promises to make everything new one day. And so you need to be prepared so that you can be a part of that. And so let's have a look at our chapter. Let me encourage you, if, you, if you're new here especially, grab one of the Pew Bibles and open it up to Isaiah 65. And so are you prepared for life and death? For there is a God who can be found in life now, today, by us. And so have you prepared your life to know that, to find this God to seek out this God. You know the big old question that people ask, can I ever find God? Can I know God? Can I have certainty that he's for real, that there is indeed a God who made me? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. You can find God. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. And God is saying here in this passage to his people, he can be found. In fact, in verse 1, he, he says he can be even be found by those who weren't even looking for him. Those who weren't searching for him, they can find him too. Look at verse 1. God says, I revealed myself. Or more literally, it's passive here. I was sought. God was sought out by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call upon my name, I said, He am I. He am I. Which is exactly what we see in our gathering in this church family each week, isn't it? People who were not the people of God, but became the people of God. On last count, there, there's about 27 different cultures represented in our church family. And not one of those cultures were the original people of God. 
And that's because we're all Gentiles here. In fact, the vast majority of Christians by far around the world are Gentiles. And so on one level, we see verse 1 already fulfilled in our gathering. Those who were not the people of God, nations that were not God's nation, are now God's. But now we read in the next verse, those who should have known God. The people Isaiah was writing to, the people of God. And remember last week, they, they wrote out this long prayer. And in their prayer, they were praying, God, why have you been so far away? Why have you been so distant from us? Why don't you love us anymore? Why don't you rend the heavens and come down? Remember their prayer last week? Well, God now answers them. And God turns it around on them. God says, well, I haven't been far at all. It's you. You're the obstinate, stubborn, stiff-necked people. You go off your own way. You do wicked things. You go to idols, fake gods, statues, and you bend your knee to that. And more than that, you even engage in magic, in the occult. And so you see verses 2 to 4 now. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in the ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil. You see, there is a God who can be found by all, but yet his very own people turn their backs on God and they turn to all sorts of idols and mediums and magic and the occult. And what does God think about his people? Look at verse 5, the second part. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. I mean, they're a constant irritant to God, a nuisance to God. Imagine God saying that to anyone. You are a nuisance to me. But there is a God to be found, especially if God reaches out. And we now know on our side of history, God has reached out in the most spectacular way already. He has rendered heavens and he has come down. And he's come down in his son, Jesus Christ, who said, Here I am. Here I am. I can be found. And so, are you prepared for life? You see, if you are prepared for life, at the very least, you owe it to yourself, at the very least, you need to find out this God. You need to come to know this God. Don't turn your back from this God who reaches out. Now, in context, of course, God was speaking to his ethnic Jews, the, his people back then. But don't you think God can say something similar to, to us today? Something similar like that verse, Australia. Australia. All day long, I held out my hands to you, but you are an obstinate people. Do you think it's an accident in Australia? There are churches scattered throughout this land. Do you think it was an accident that Parliament begins with the Lord's Prayer? Do you think it was an accident on the very first fleet to Australia that the chaplain was an evangelical Christian, Richard Johnson. Was that or an accident? 
And so you can imagine God saying the same thing today to us. I hold out my hands to you, but you provoke me to my very face. There is a God to be found. Have you prepared your life for that? And this is the same God, we now read, who will hold every single soul to account. Now that thought should be terrifying. Every single soul, your life, my life, every single soul to account. And so preparing for life means preparing to meet God. Preparing for life means that I am aware that every single word spoken, every thought imagined, every deed done will be held to account. Everything done under sun will be held to account. Nothing escapes. Now, often we don't like to think about God that way. Often we don't like to think about that at all, that all will be held to account. But you see, God takes us more seriously than we do ourselves. Have you thought about it that way? God takes your words, my words, your actions, my actions, your thoughts and my thoughts more seriously than we do ourselves. He treats us with dignity. And that's why he'll take our choices, our decisions, our thoughts and our actions seriously. He'll hold us to account. And so what will God do with the people who are obstinate and rebellious? Shall God just, you know, turn a blind eye? Let's, let's just call it even. I'll, I'll forget it all. I mean, what would that say about God if God did such a thing? It would mean that this is a careless God, one who would have no concern for his own honour, no concern for his own righteousness, his own holiness for justice. But this is not the God of the Bible. Instead, he will hold all to account, and so you better be prepared. Look at verses 6 to 7. God says, See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord, because they burnt sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. Nothing will be forgotten by God. Justice will be served. Punishment will be met. Debts will be paid. And so when you read that, it should leave us really trembling with fear because who can be saved? What hope is there for anyone if God will hold every single soul to account? Well, the only hope there is, is if God spares some. And that's what we read in verse 8. Israel here in the Old Testament often described as a vineyard. And by this time, it was a rotten vineyard, decaying rubbish. But yet, there were some who would cry out to God and say, don't destroy the whole vineyard, there are still some good grapes in it. There's still some good juice you can get from it. And so you see verse 8, as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and men say, don't destroy it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. What that means is that God, out of his kindness and mercy, he will spare some. He will spare a remnant. God will preserve 
the faithful servants who continue trusting, who continue depending on him. And so verse 9 we read, I'll bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and they will be and there my servants will live. And so here we see quite simply two groups. You have the rebels, the obstinate, the stubborn, who would turn their face away from God, who would provoke God to his face. And then you have the servants, those who would obey, listen, submit, trust. And, and, and God, in a sense, puts the world into two categories. The rebels or the servants, you're one or the other. And so how do you prepare for life? Well, you know that God will hold everyone to account. And so everything we do, say, think matters. And then we read on, when judgment comes, it will come heavy. Live your life following your fortunes. Of course, that's your choice. Live your life thinking I'm the master of my own destiny. I determine my fate. Of course, that's your choice. But look at what you'll face in the end. The judgment is severe. Verses 11 to 12, have a look. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, that is, you're living the life, living your life like you own it with no regard for God at all. And then verse 12, the consequence. I will destine you for the sword and you will all bend down for the slaughter. For I caught you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. You see, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verses like this should cause us to tremble in great fear. But yet verses like this should also remind us that, you know, God is not one you muck around with. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He created everything. By speaking, he owns us. If even the queen were to come, everyone would pay their proper respects. You would curtsy, you would speak gently and kindly with, with great respect. But I don't know about your experience hearing of how some people speak about the God of the universe. They treat him like dirt. He is the king of kings and lord of lords the God of all things. And so to fall into the hands of this God is a frightening thing. But yet for the servants, you've got the rebels, now the servants, those who go on trusting in God, never forsaking God. God calls out, they respond, they listen. God says, here I am, and they never turn their backs on God. Well, they get it all, blessing upon blessing. Look at verses 13 to 14. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. My servants will sing out of joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. Rebels, you get cursed. Servants, you get the blessings of God. And so how do you prepare for life? You see, life can be so busy, but you can, be, you can be prepared by taking life more seriously, like how God would 
because all will be accountable to God one day. And finally, we see here, we prepare for life by knowing that one day all things will be made right. This is not all of life. There is more to come. In fact, there is better to come. All that is wrong with the world now will one day be made right. Chaos to peace. Sorrow to joy. Mortality to immortality. Death defeated. Life forever with God. It's a picture of the city of God again. We, we saw the picture of uh, that city a couple of weeks ago. And we see it again here. It's the picture of heaven. Look at verse 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And then we read, no more sadness, no more crying, no more tears, no more weeping. All that is rotten and wrong and decaying with this world will be gone. And so you see verses 18 to 19. But be glad and rejoice forever in, in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Nothing in that existence to hurt the body. Nothing in that existence to break the heart. Nothing in that existence to crush the soul. Can you imagine that? Rejoicing all the time, no tears in sight. Are you prepared for that? And in verse 20 we read on. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. That is, life will never be cut short. Or an old man who does not live out his years. That is, life will always be full. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Now what does that mean? It sounds like there's death in heaven. Now, I take this as a poetic metaphor. It's prophetic in writing. It's making it the point that old age is to be expected. Life to the full is to be expected because it's eternal. So much so that it will be seen as a curse to die young, which means that it just won't happen. There's already no weeping and no crying in heaven. And earlier in Isaiah 25, Isaiah spoke about death being defeated and swallowed up and that's what it will be and then we read on there will be fulfillment satisfaction contentment security and fruit verse 21 they will build houses and dwell in them they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit that is what you build will last i mean many things we build in fact everything we build in this world will not last what you built, you will enjoy. And it won't be a chasing after the wind anymore, like in the book of Ecclesiastes. A chasing after the wind, finding things but never getting it. It won't be like this world. And so you see verses 22 to 23. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. 
For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people, my chosen ones, will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. And so try to imagine that picture. It's a picture of perfect bliss. It's so hard to imagine, isn't it? But yet it's only secondary to the primary importance, and that is to have personal, intimate relationship with God himself. Heaven is about God, not about stuff. And so verse 24, you see the intimacy here. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. And then we get a perfect picture of peace and harmony and return to a better Eden. The curse of the four reverse, our final verse. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Out here in the wild, the wolf will slaughter the lamb, but not there. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. That is, sin will stand forever cursed. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, when you read those final verses, shouldn't it really just excite you, help you anticipate it with great longing for this place that God will bring about? It's a great way to end our series on Isaiah, isn't it? With great hope and anticipation. But I wonder whether even for those of us who are Christians, we hear about heaven, picture of heaven painted like that, but it doesn't seem to excite us as it should. Or we don't feel that homesick as we should. And I wonder whether that's just because it's just too hard to imagine. But I want to spend a moment with you. Let's just try to imagine that a bit more and dwell on it a bit more. Imagine a life, your life now, but imagine a life like this, where every single pain you feel now chronic back pain that broken relationship won't be remembered gone imagine every hint of shame you feel now that disgusting past you had that can never leave you you feel no more that feeling of guilt that just weighs you down how could I have done that to my loved one but that guilt lifted Imagine a life like that. Imagine a life where it is utterly sinless. What plagues this world completely gone. Never, ever the evil thought. Never, ever that hateful desire. Never the envious heart. Never the shameful regret but a life so full, so abundant, so filled with purity and joy and goodness and humility and service and love and faithfulness and grace. Can you imagine a life like that? Or imagine a life where the love that is expressed is untarnished, undiluted, and unblemished in every way 
the love that is expressed between people, every single human being, no in-groups, no cliques, no outcasts, no greater and lesser, no disharmony, no cold shoulder, no passive-aggressive. And where the love expressed between God and man will be perfect, where there will be no hindrance, no restriction to the presence of God, to the very presence of God. Imagine a life like that. Imagine a life where our emotions are never, ever fickle. No such thing as depression and anxiety and worries and mental illness no longer exists. Where the tears will never, ever flow, not one drop. Where our sorrows will be turned into lasting joy and celebration and praise and glory. Imagine a life like that. And imagine a life where we are no longer subject to the ravages of old age, of illnesses, of diseases, of cancers, and of death, but a resurrection life that goes into all eternity in perfect bliss. Can you imagine such a life? It's just so hard to imagine, but that is what is promised. So hard, but it is true. And if you can imagine such a life, it's only but a small glimpse. In fact, an inadequate glimpse of the real thing when we get there. It's why Spurgeon, you know, that great Baptist pastor, he was so bold, so game, that he would even say this. He said, depend on it. Your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be your richest moment. Better than the day of your birth will be the day of your death. It shall be the beginning of heaven, the rising of a sun that shall go no more down forever. Will you ever be so bold and game to say such a thing? Would you ever be so game and bold to say what Trish said before I mean I don't know how you felt when you heard those words I look forward to dying why for I will be with my God I mean you can only say those things so bold so crude almost I mean when you look at someone who's so old and frail and wasting away but yet to say that is your best hour You can only say such a thing. You can only believe such a thing if you believe what Isaiah says here. If you believe what God promises here, that he will make all things new and his servants. Only his servants, not everyone, only his servants will enjoy it. Those who belong to him, those who trust in Jesus as their saviour, the suffering servant, the one who was pierced for their transgressions. Only they will enjoy it forever. Spurgeon, he also said, that's how you prepare for life. You prepare for life by preparing to die that type of death with absolute confidence 
on where you are going. And so our question for this morning, are you prepared for life and death? You see, life for so many billions in the world just looks so, in a sense, normal. We're all so busy, often get overwhelmed with all that happens, pressures and to, uh, from all directions of life. Worry about work and finances and car and house and kids and relationships and retirement. And then to add on top of all those worries, you get your accidents that comes every couple of years and then the illnesses, the ravages of old age and then death. I mean, what a summary of life. I mean, it's a simplification. But wouldn't you say that that is the life of so many people? We are born. We live. We have some fun. We suffer a whole lot. And then we die. Isn't that summary? If you're not prepared for life and death, that's how it will be. But if you are prepared then you will not miss out on the most important thing about life. And that is God, the life giver. To have life with him. The one who's made himself known clearly through his son Jesus Christ. The one who will one day hold us all to account. And the one who will make all things new. It's why I do what I do. What's the job of a pastor? To prepare people for life and death. It's why on my pastoral visits, when we catch up, hospitality, when I come over to hospitals, and what is it my desire in my heart of hearts? It's really to make sure that you are prepared for life and death. And you can only be prepared by knowing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves you and cherishes you, so that you'll never walk this life alone, never. You have God. And you'll never die alone because you'll see God on the other side. And that will be your homecoming. And so are you prepared for life and death? I spoke about Spurgeon before. Spurgeon was a great man. Did so many things. But do you know how many years he had to do it all in? He didn't actually live that long of a life. He died at 57 years old, which is really not that old. Died from kidney failure. But because he was so prepared for life and death, death did not catch him by surprise at all. Did not catch him off guard. He wrote a lot about it. He was prepared. He taught his people about it. And on his tombstone in the West Nor Norwood Cemetery, he had engraved... On his tombstone, the words of great hope. Here's a picture of his tombstone. And down the bottom, it's hard to see, but I'll read it. He says, Here lies the body of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, waiting for the appearing of his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, also that of his dearly loved wife, Susanna. And then he wrote these words, very small print down the bottom. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
Isn't that what Isaiah said in our passage? And isn't that what the last book of the Bible says? What Jesus promises. And so are you prepared for life and death? There's only one way. It's my prayer that you are. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and grateful that out of your own kindness and initiative and grace, you did not remain silent, but you made yourself known to us. You reached out to us and you redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, we long for the day when we will see the new heavens and the new earth, when all that is corrupt, all that taints and rots in this world are gone, when all the former things would have passed away, when we'll finally come home in the presence of your glorious splendor. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in the name of our Saviour, we pray. Amen.